0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 1. 1 Corinthians, chapter 1. It's been about five years since Paul first set foot in the city of Corinth in southern Greece. It's been almost three or maybe a little more than three years since he left, and in that time he's found out that there are multiple serious problems in this body of believers that he founded. He founded this church. He knows many of them. And with the pastor's heart and the apostle's authority, he is writing an incredible letter to these people that he deeply, deeply cares about. One of their main issues is that they're just not united about hardly anything. They're quarreling, haggling, arguing, following different people, trying to increase their position of importance and status amongst the other believers in the church. So Paul knows that he can address this by appealing to them to be really united in the gospel and able to work together to reflect God's character to the world they live in by understanding the distinctiveness of the way that God saved them. And he knows if he can get that across... And the truth involved with what God's plan of redemption is and how it, was, how it played out with each of them, that they may again humble themselves before the Lord God Almighty and realize the truths of being united in Christ in His body. In and through the proclamation of the gospel is the way that God saves, with Christ and His cross as the focal point, These people knew that. You and I know that, too. But what we must understand and constantly review and preach to ourselves is how completely counterintuitive God's way of salvation is to the human mind. What God did in sending Christ is just so opposite of any plan that mankind could come up with. And there's really no argument there. All you have to do is look at every other major religion or belief system in the world, and it isn't anywhere close to the same idea as what Christianity is. Christ did not come into the world like human beings think and, pl- and uh in a real and powerful Savior kind of person. He came another way. And most of God's own people who had the Old Testament Scripture that had a lot to say about how God is saving and would save, even misunderstood how the promised Messiah, Savior, that Savior would come. They wanted one way to think of this is they wanted what we now understand to be the second coming to be the first coming. Some of us are still in that category. But the first coming of the Savior had to precede the reckoning of the now it's time to make all things right second coming. The Savior had to become a man himself, live the perfect life demanded of all of us, and then die in our place on the cross in order to accomplish His mission of being the atoning sacrifice which would be acceptable to God, completing the purchase with His own blood of those elect whom God chose before the foundation of the world to believe in Christ and His work. And therefore those people able to stand before God Almighty, clothed in not their righteousness, but Christ's righteousness. He took on the cross the condemnation and the death that we deserve for our sin. And he transferred his righteousness onto us. And that's called the great exchange. And even the word great does not come close to how great that grace is. Christ's resurrection was the proof that his sacrifice for us was accepted by the Father. Now, it's obvious that these believers in Corinth are not clear at all about the distinctiveness of God's wisdom in this plan of redemption through his son. We know that because they are we know that for the simple reason that they are not living like humble recipients Of God's grace. In fact, almost the opposite. They're jockeying for position and power and notoriety as if each one of them had been called by God because of their own distinctiveness and ability and wisdom and intellect. They're quarreling and being divisive, which means they do not see or they have lost sight of the basic understanding of how God works through his message of the cross in Christ. They've lost really the connection between how the Son of God humbled himself in his mission to purchase a people for himself and how they also should then be reflecting that humility in their own lives if they've understood what he did. In other words, the way they are living and behaving is reflecting the world's thinking, the world's values. The example Paul gives in verse 13 through 17 of this first chapter about how they are quarreling about who baptized whom. Can you imagine such a discussion? By this kind of haggling, what are they doing? They are seeking for themselves themselves better positions or status amongst their fellow believers. They're positioning themselves to be in more positions. They, they're aligning themselves with the leader whose, one way to say this is whose coattails they wanted to be carried along on. They wanted to be identified with. These are the early sign of the desperate plight of entourages. But that's how they were motivated. Paul addresses this problem by asking them some very simple questions with obvious answers, which he hopes will wake them up. In verse 13, is Christ divided? Then he calls attention, really, to their immaturity by asking, was I crucified for you? And then, were you baptized in the name of Paul? And that's when Paul lays out the simple truth in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. that kind of sound familiar? It's what he says in Romans 1, 16 as well and numerous other places. Now last week, we continued in this passage and got through verse 25, in which Paul presents a contrast between God's strength and man's weakness. And it is a striking contrast. God, through his wisdom and power, accomplished what human wisdom and power could never accomplish. In fact, what human beings thought was utterly foolish was the way God provided redemption through the cross of Christ. What human beings thought was an impossible way to accomplish anything became the only way for anyone to be able to stand before God and live. The world's ideas about what wisdom and power are were therefore turned upside down by God. In our wisdom, the world's wisdom, we decided that we were smarter than wisdom himself. In our power, that's in quotation marks, we decided that we were stronger than strength himself. True wisdom is embodied in the cross. Why? Because it's a call for intellectual humility and admitting our limitations before a God who chose to humble himself in Christ and experience human limitations. We could ponder that. We will ponder that for eternity. True power is also embodied in the cross because it's a call to share the weakness, quote-unquote, of a God who subjected himself in order that he might share himself with others. If you were able, would you please stand? I'm going to read the previous two passages I was just Talking about along with ours today, so I'm going to start in verse 18 and read through verse 31. Be reading from the English Standard Version. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification And redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May be seated. We see in the last part of what we just read that Paul now focuses on the people in the Corinthian church. And I hope you noticed, it's pretty obvious, he uses the people of this church to illustrate his contrast between human wisdom and God's wisdom. But not in the way that we probably expected. In verse 26, "...for consider your calling, brothers," Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. This first word here, consider, is a command to think about it, contemplate it seriously. In fact, this is the first of Paul's commands in this letter. He's not asking them to. He's not really appealing here. He's telling them to do something that they need to do. Evidently, Paul felt the Corinthians should be awake by now, ready to focus and consider this situation. This is like saying, okay, are you with me? Really think about what you were when God called you to himself through Christ. Next important word here is calling. This is the effectual calling or drawing of God's elect to himself. And then we see not many of you. He's not excluding everyone or anyone in, this, in these three categories. But his point is that not many of the Corinthian believers had been in these privileged positions when they came to Christ. In fact, very few were. Most of them were not the wise, the powerful, or the rich of this bustling, immoral city. There was a countess, I read about this week, of the privileged class in the days of George Whitfield, the great evangelist who used to say that she was saved by the letter M- In this verse, the text says not many. It does not say not any. She understood. He's pointing out that hardly any of them had been in the upper echelons of society. Yet God had saved them. Many more of them than, were, than those who were looked up to by the world they lived in. The phrase, not many of you were, is basically repeated three times, once for each category. It's just implied. Wise according to worldly standards. What is that? Who is that? These are the intellectuals or the philosophical class. This is a big deal. We've talked about that in Greece, especially. The powerful or the mighty, this is the influential, the opinion makers, the people with clout. Of noble birth is just what it says the aristocracy, which means they're rich. In this Corinthian church, there were people representing all the divisions in the society they came from. They had been saved by the gospel of Christ crucified, the power of God for salvation. These diverse backgrounds included, and there were a lot of slaves in this town, slaves all the way to the upper classes. But it was obvious that most of the people were not the wise, the powerful, or the nobility of Corinth. Yet, God had saved them in Christ, and where had he transferred each and every person who believed in him to? He transferred them into the kingdom of his Son. All of them. All of them. So they now had the privilege to grow in the knowledge of the God who created them and saved them and to live in such a way that the non-believing Corinthians would see with their own eyes how the people of the church reflected something very different in this town. Something many more would be drawn to. What's that? The character of God in the gospel of Christ crucified. So why does God work this unique and counterintuitive upside down kind of way? Why didn't he do it like we think he should do it? Or like the world thinks he should do it? Well, Paul now gets to God's theological reason for working this way in verses 27 through 31. If, this, if all this so far wasn't enough to get their attention, look what he says in verse 27 and 28. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. D.A. Carson points out right here the following. Paul presupposes that people will not come to Christ unless he chooses them. So... If there are many nobodies who come to Christ, it can only mean that Christ has chosen them. God delights to prick all the pretensions of this rebellious world. Where proud men and women parade their mighty intellects, God chooses the simple. Where wealthy people assess each other on the basis of their respective holdings, God chooses the poor. Where self-centered leaders lust for power and fight over it, he chooses the nobodies. All the things that are, quote, that is, the things that appear to have substance and are highly promoted in this fallen world are what? Brought to nothing. They are written off as having no eternal significance since God does not attach his salvation to any of them. In fact, he goes out of his way to overturn their presumption. God chooses nobodies. If your self-esteem is having trouble right now, it probably needs to. This is humbling. What is God's ultimate reason for working or choosing in this way, then? Verse 29, it's pretty clear. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God, He saves or redeems fallen human beings only because of his grace does he owe anyone forgiveness no does he owe anyone eternal life no in Isaiah 42 8 we read I'm the Lord that is my name my glory I give to no other nor my praise to carved idols. In Isaiah 48, 11, for my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profound, profaned? My glory I will not give to another. You know, the bottom line here is, is really simple. When God saves any of us, he, any of us, Absolutely none of us, absolutely no one, can claim any credit for themselves. This is a huge problem for these people in this church. And Paul deals with it throughout both of his letters to them. For example, in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, later in verse 21, So let no one boast in men. In 2 Corinthians 10, 17, the next letter, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 12, and what I am doing, I will continue to do, Paul writes, in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. So the Apostle Paul uses the same people he is writing to to be his prime example that God's wisdom and power are radically different from the world's versions. God's wisdom and power actually bring worldly thinking and pretensions in and power to nothing, he says. Well, how beautiful is it to realize once again that salvation comes by God's grace and is received by those who trust him, not by a certain criteria of lineage or any pedigree or any achievement or power or great decision-making ability. The kicker, as I'm sure you realize, is that all of the people Who should have understood, of all the people who should have understood and appreciated God's grace, the Corinthians should have. Can you picture that church? But they just didn't appreciate it. All they had to do was look at who they were when God saved them. Then we get to verses 30 and 31. And because of him, you are... Here's Paul's favorite phrase, because it says so much. Because of him, you are in Christ. Does that kind of sum this up? Who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification... And redemption. And here's one of those words or phrases that tells us wow, we get to find out why. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. How can any pride or pretentiousness live more than one second knowing this truth? in a church that claims to know the Lord. It shouldn't. Now, Paul is not saying that Christians have nothing to boast about. He's saying that if we boast about the things the world boasts about, we're boasting about the wrong things. Does that make sense? C.S. Lewis wrote that humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's a good one. If our focus is primarily on ourselves, we will not be able to even recognize or understand God's grace. You see why? We don't really think we ever needed it. We kind of wanted to chip in with our stuff. That's If that's true, if we're focusing primarily on ourselves, we will have great difficulty not trying to find things in ourselves to boast about. See, that's, that's our motivation. We want to make ourselves look good. We want to have other people say nice things about us. We want to be in charge of this or that deal so we can run it. We want to do this or that. You just make a list a mile long there. And it's at the bottom level. I'm trying to get some credit. Paul is actually using here Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Remember, those are the Old Testament scriptures that he had. This was one of the first letters written in the New Testament. And what does it say? Well, listen to this or turn there if you want to and see if you hear a similar theme. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Obviously, the prophet is giving God's word to the people who were, again, in one of their disobedient... Well, they were almost always there. So we'll just leave it at that. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this. Are you ready? We we actually have the reason, the theology. God is giving us the reason why we boast in the Lord and what it is. Let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. How? What part? That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love. Sunday's Sunday school lesson today. Justice, righteousness in the earth. Did you catch that? God chose to reveal Himself. In love He sent a Savior. Because we can't save ourselves so that we could know him. He created us. We forget that so often. The whole point is to know our creator and be just blown over continually by his grace, mercy, power, creativity, life that he provides. So that's as we, if we're saying we get to know God, this is what it should look like. That we know that the Lord practices steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth. And then the Lord says, for in these things I delight. He delights to know that we want to know him. Boasting in the Lord does not mean that somebody can claim they know God so their opinions about everything are right and worthy. That's just self-centered, some kind of religiosity. Human boasting is evil because it elevates self to the pinnacle of importance. Is that also possible to do in churches and religious organizations? Sometimes it's worse because you know it's not supposed to be like that. It's still putting ourselves up. And what that indicates is that we are not focusing on eternal things, but rather on things that will not last then cannot endure. And that's the distinction. We live in stuff that's not going to last. But he tells us that. So there are tools to, there are tools and gifts to enjoy, but if we put our hope and everything and lifting those things up, we're going to be disappointed every day for the rest of our lives. Think about it this way. What's the primary reason of focus of being on this earth? Well, you just looked at it. It's to know the God who made you and everything else he made. Enjoy it. People who constantly focus on themselves will never really know God. But those who truly come to know God Delight just to know him. How valuable is that? He becomes their center. They think of him, delight in him, boast of him. They want to know more and more about what kind of God he is. And as this person grows in knowing God, what do they learn about him? D.A. Carson again explains this a little bit. God tells us himself in Jeremiah 9, 24, that he's the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. Wouldn't this person then want those same values to prevail? not because their ego is bound up with certain arbitrary notions of one of those three or even some combination like justice, but because their center is God and they take their cues from Him in His character. They boast in Him. That's what it looks like. Verse 30, if we look at that again, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. God's plan of redemption is his plan. The Holy Spirit effectually calls the elect into the plan that God has for redemption and into fellowship with and united to Christ who carried out the plan. He did the work to save. The Trinity is all through here. The wisdom of God, then, is not the world's wisdom on steroids, which a lot of people think. What the world can do, we can do better. God's wisdom secures our righteousness. What does that mean? That's what the text says. Our legal standing before God. God's wisdom secures our sanctification. It's really the kingdom of holiness that we belong to. Started, it's continuing. And when we meet him, it'll be completed. If it was completed somewhere on earth, when he did come, we'd be going, oh, man, thanks, I've been doing this for a while now, you made me complete. Because we still struggle all the way to the end. It's a weird counter, it even makes it more special because we've seen God be faithful all through that process anyway. and What about our redemption? Many think this is put at the end of this because redemption is really the the first gift of Christ to be given to us, and it's the last to be brought to completion. The wisdom of God secures our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. The danger that's good, and it's the reason why we go through the Bible without skipping parts that we're in, because it's too easy to skip the parts that we're having trouble with or we don't want to deal with. But we can become like the Corinthians if we treasure the things in this world that will not last. It's already a great, great temptation. We all breathe the air. We all see the same stuff. You can't go to any city in America now and see hardly any distinctive anything. It all looks like one big strip mall. Same designs, updated. See the point? We don't realize how much all this stuff affects us. And if we treasure the things in this world that will not last more than the eternal treasure of knowing God through Christ of getting to know him and delight in him, then we'll be on this path like the Corinthians were. I think Jesus said something about this. Imagine that. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, thank you for the wake-up call of this book. Thank you that you love. You sent your son to do what was necessary to bring us into relationship with you so that we could know you, so that we could treasure you, so that we could grow with other people whom you have saved in Christ and learn lessons that we never thought that we ever would have to learn or didn't even know about and experience joys of fellowship and struggling together and praying together and coming before you together, one of the most precious gifts in this life we thank you for that. We pray for your protection, your guarding, for your wisdom to be able to discern what is most important, what is eternal. And it all revolves around you. All your benefits to us come through being in Christ. And we pray that we would appreciate Every single benefit. Just knowing our creator make us not just say, well, that's enough, but becomes such a great delight to us in times of joy and in times of sorrow that we actually rejoice to know the one who made us and to come to know you better and better. We ask that in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? Let's do the Trinity thing again. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with y'all. You're dismissed.